The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. My name is Greg Gifford. I'm one of your instructors this weekend. It's my second year being with IBCD, so I'm sorry if you were at the, the uh, conference last year and you're stuck with me again. Uh, you know, you can only do so much. Uh, you know, currently, what's important to know is that I would consider myself a Californian too. I'm from Santa Clarita, and in Santa Clarita, I have the privilege of doing two things, so that primarily means that I get to be a professor at a place called the Master's University, where I teach biblical counseling full-time. We have two different degrees in biblical counseling, one as a master's degree and one as a bachelor's degree, and so I primarily get to teach the bachelor's students, which basically is kind of like the 17 to 22, 23-year-old students on campus. So that's my, my first joy and passion, and when I'm not there, I'm basically at my church. I attend and help pastor and serve as an elder at our church called Faith Community Church in New Hall, California. That is where I do the majority of my counseling. I, you know, on the occasion, I'll counsel outside of our church's context, but I'm the elder that oversees our counseling ministry, and I'm also the pastor that does counseling that's because my life has really been about counseling for whatever the Lord has and his purposes. I, I kind of slipped into counseling ministry. Uh, it was about 12 years ago, and I, now it's my sixth year full-time doing biblical counseling. Before I was at the church and at Masters, I was working as a biblical counselor in a full-time counseling ministry in Charleston, South Carolina. So if you're familiar with the Low Country, anyone ever heard of the Low Country? That's a part of the world down in the southeast of the U.S., and so it was Low Country Biblical Counseling Center that I served at. So that brings you up to just a little bit of context. Probably what would be important to hear is why did they ask me to teach on military as a good soldier of Christ? It's because from 2012 to 2000, excuse me, reverse that, from 2008 to 2012, I served in the United States Army. For me, going into the Army was post-college. So let me tell you a little bit about my college and then my MOS. My bachelor's degree was in pastoral ministry and Bible, and I became a signal officer in the United States Army. <laughs> if you go back to 2007 when I enlisted, like the Army was desperate for just about anybody they could get. And I was one of those folks they were desperate for. You know, I had a pulse, a clean record, and a face, and those were my qualifications <laughs> at the point. So uh, they graciously allowed me to come and serve as an officer. I primarily served in Asia. In the, it's roughly the 38th parallel in between North and South Korea. There's actually a military base there. That was my first duty station. And it was just on the uh, it was a co-shared base with the Korean soldiers there. Then I served in Japan uh, and then also served down in Seoul, not to mention any of my training down in the, the States. So I never try and paint this as I was in Afghanistan for two years or I was in Iraq for three years. No, my duties were primarily in Asia. My deployments were there primarily. When I got out, you'll, you might actually smile at this. I'm not technically out all the way. So if you're familiar with the IRR, I have a, an email sitting in my inbox right now to where I have to make a decision if I'm going to submit my unqualified resignation from the IRR. I've been in the IRR since 2012. I drilled once, and for those of you who are military, to go to reserves from active duty is really, really hard. It feels like you're entering G-Shock forces. So... Uh, I've been trying to weigh through that decision with my family and see if I do want to just fully step away or what that looks like. But that's, that's uh, just some context here. So I'm assuming we have a few military. So I know you two guys are military. Any other military among us? One military-ish? No, Louise military? No? Okay, so um, what's interesting is that we're in a place where it seems like it's primarily Navy and Marines. We were just talking before the session. We have Naval bases and Marine bases here. There's no Air Force bases down here, right? March Air Force Base in Riverside County. March, okay, Riverside, okay. Are there any Army bases close by? Northern California Air Force. 
No, up north. Okay, good. Keep the army guys out of here. You don't want them down here. Let's spoil the community. No, okay, good. That's the opposite of what I'm accustomed to. I'm accustomed to primarily army with the little bit that we got of the Air Force. So in Georgia, South Carolina, kind of the southeast of the states, it was primarily Army and Air Force run. And uh, to the glory of God, we didn't have to interact much with the Marines. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we always, the Marines are easy targets. So I've been assigned the topic here, finding our identity as a military member. And I didn't pick soldier, just so you know. So you can sub in airmen, you can sub in marine, whatever you prefer there. Just think of a good military member of Christ, a good soldier of Christ. When we talk about the military, there are nuances to the military community. It's almost a sub-community, a created sub-community or a created subculture, whether it has intentionally become that for people. So just let me highlight some of what I mean by that. Uh, point A here in your notes, it says that there are indoctrinated personal values. When I went through basic training, we were actually required to memorize the values and to be able to recite them. Every time I went through promotion, I had to be able to recite certain values of the United States Army. Loyalty, honor, duty, respect. Those were the formal values that were communicated. I mean, when, when you go into training facilities, you'll even have banners of them on the wall that you're, you're called to memorize those. I'm sure the Air Force, Navy, Marines have their own version of that, that you have explicit, indoctrinated personal values that you're all given, but we also have more implicit personal values. Just think of something that maybe is as benign as timeliness. If you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. Ooh, that one was a hard one to shake. Valuing your fellow soldier, never leave a soldier behind. When you think of the implicit, indoctrinated personal values, each of our branches had its own implicit, indoctrinated value as well. Now also think, this is point B, nuances to a military community include individual appearance standards that we in the military are very big on appearance. And I don't mean this in a superficial or I don't mean this in a, a flattery capacity, but think of your uniform, for instance. Think of now the badges and the patches and the units that are represented, the schools that are represented, the deployments that are represented through your own physical appearance so that in your uniform, even if it's just a battle dress or it's your formal attire, we can look at you and we can see much of your life. Ribbons, deployments, unit you're with, qualifications, we can look at your uniform and we can see much about you. That's not to mention anything about fitness, but fitness is a, is a standard within the military that all of us have our own requirements, whatever that looks like. Believe it or not, the Army does have fitness requirements. I know that the Army often gets made fun of for that, but we had our own fitness requirements. Think of another nuance of the military community, that we have a pre-designated community. Have you ever considered that? That you're relocated to a foreign town, maybe even in a foreign country, and you're assigned a new community, a base. And at that base is where your kids are gonna go to school, it's where you're gonna do all of your shopping. It's where you'll meet most of your friends. And if you're overseas, it's gonna be the place where you'll have the most space and things will seem most like they're at home. You can go to the PX and you can shop. But we also have within that pre-designated community, not only bases, but we have a unit. That there's a lot of camaraderie in our units. We hold fast to some of our brothers and sisters in arms. The, the ones that are dearest to us are the ones that we served next to. In our units, I can even imagine uh, there were different times when we would have unit uh, get-togethers and it was those who were former members of our unit and present. There was a camaraderie that was there, a community that was built in based off of the fact that we were just simply a part of the same unit at one point in history. We also have job specialties and ranks within this pre-designated community. 
Job specialties, what I mean by that is your MOS, your specialty within the military to where you rally around the pilots or you rally around the mechanics or you rally around infantry, you rally around combat arms, you rally around the chaplain corps, whatever it is that we have a pre-designated community. We even have a delineation of social structure often called ranks and that fraternization could even be a problem. I'll share a story in a little bit about how as a a young lieutenant, I even met up with those who went through basic training with me and but they were privates or private first class, we would still get together and spend time. And how that now created awkwardness in our relationship as people would see a private and a lieutenant out hanging out together. So we have a pre-designated community, all of that to suggest that in the military, whether it's intentional or unintentional, there is a pre-designated community, your base, your unit, your job specialty, your rank. Let me explain this last one, that in the military there is a provided vision of success, a vision of what human flourishing looks like, a vision of what it's going to be for you to arrive and reach the good life. And almost always at the top of that is retirement, (laughs) isn't it? Like that's how we all counted our service. How close to 20 years were we? As as captains, you know, we're at like the four or five. So we're still pre-10, you know, we're not on the backside of the hill. When you go to 10 plus, it's like you're in it. You're in it, you're gonna stay. No one's getting out of the military at 11 years. You're gonna stay till 20 if you can. You have this vision of success of retirement. But there was also a vision of success of promotions, that you're making it to that next grade, that next rank, not just for the sake of money that we got paid more to advance, but for the sake of your career. We always thought there was something odd about the person who hadn't been promoted in some time. When I was in the military, they weren't cracking down as much, so they weren't trying to winnow out those who were maybe just a little bit of a coaster. But you recognize that the, the military brings with it its own sense of success in promotions, that you are somebody, you are valuable if you continue to move up that ladder, whatever that is, warrant officer, enlisted, commissioned officer, that there is this provided vision of success. Two more under vision of success. Duty stations. There are certain duty stations that it was like the widow maker to get to that one. For instance, I spent one year and nine months in training. Who knows how much of the American taxpayer's dollar that equates to. One year and nine months in training. And as a married man, that meant that I spent one year and nine months separate from my wife. And then I got orders for Kuwait. If you're familiar with Kuwait, it's hot, it's unaccompanied assignment, it's boring work, and it's a year long. That's a duty station that nobody wanted, but Europe, Colorado, Hawaii, those were all like, what do I have to do in order to earn that duty station? A vision of success is that I will get Hawaii. I get to go and, and spend three years in Hawaii. Please, Lord, what do I have to sacrifice? Which child do I have to offer up for that duty station? There's a vision of success. That's what it looks like. Human flourishing is that I get my Hawaii assignment. Last one is specialty schools. Oftentimes what the military does is they reward us with getting to go to a specialty school. So in the Army, it was Pathfinder, Ranger, Airborne, Air Assault, that if, if we merited, earned it, in some way demonstrated that we were valuable, if we were part of a unit that was Air Assault or Airborne, we got to go to those specialty schools. And very much there was this vision of success that those who had attended such schools were successful. Like that's what human flourishing looks like. It goes on your EER, it goes on your OER. That's what it means for us to continue to be valuable. So when you recognize all of these nuances to a military community, how can you not find your identity in that? We're talking about where you live. We're talking about the people that you're embedded with, your unit, We're talking about your vocation. So the other vocations, we go home at night, not the military. 
You're always on call, always ready for that next muster. Now we're talking about not only my career, but even potentially my retirement, my future. Some of that's caught up in this time. How do we not find our identity in the military? That's the a, that's a challenge that is presented to us. Um, and the next point I'm trying to suggest some of what this looks like. You know, I've, I've said that the military is in its own sense a subculture. I'll talk later about how there's a culture shock when we're coming out. For those of us who, who went from active duty to civilian life, it was hard. It was a really challenging time because we were embedded in a subculture and we very much found our identity, whether we knew it or not, in various components in regard to our military work. For instance, I am my job specialty. For those who are in combat arms, this is something that is quite dear to them. Think of the SEALs, think of the Special Forces or Green Berets, think of the Marine Recon, think of the Rangers. Those that were in what we would call high-speed units, there is very much an identity in that capacity. I am a Green Beret, I am a Ranger, or I am a SEAL, I'm a Marine Recon. I am my job specialty. For, for the guys who are combo guys like me, there's not much of a temptation to find your identity in radios. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about mechanics and working on computers, but there wasn't much of a temptation there. But for the combat arms guys, like, man, that's really hard. It's really hard to walk away from that high-speed unit and not feel that you've lost part of your identity. Your job specialty has very much become who you are. So when you're, when you're medically discharged, it's a challenge. It's a challenge because that was your identity. You were that. The next one is rank. I am my rank. There's even places on our bases where if you are an officer, you could dine at that place. There are clear delineations between enlisted and commissioned officers, that there can be a temptation to find our identity in our rank. Just think of the crusty E7 that you know. <laughs> I'm picturing like three in my mind right now. They all have a mustache. Just picture that crusty E7. When he gets out of the military and no one cares anymore that he was an E7, that he was the one that got things done. He was an NCO. You think of that as now a challenge of, okay, I am finding my identity in my rank. I'll never forget whenever we were at fellowship at our church in Seoul, Korea, we had a one-star general that would come, and then we had a, a sergeant first class, E7, that taught a Bible study together. And one of the things that they did is they took off their uniform top as they taught the class so that whoever came in would not be able to identify them based off of their rank. We have a temptation to find our rank as being our identity. Low rank, high rank, whatever rank that looks like. Next, I'm using the terms OER and EER, officer evaluation reports, enlisted evaluation reports. I'm sure warrant officers have something along these lines. We find our identity in our evaluations. Those that are high speed are those that are getting all the right positions and continue to move on. They do two years here, two years there. They deploy, they come back, go to that next school, and they're continuing to bolster a really dynamic OER, EER, this evaluation report. So those fast trackers, there can be a temptation to look at our OER and our EER and to find our identity in our accomplishments there, our deployments, our awards, our specialty schools. So we have... Uh, this is point D, our deployments. And this isn't to minimize anyone's deployment throughout the history of time, but think of those that deployed to Vietnam. I mean, there's, there's hats that are associated with the ribbon that was awarded to a, a Vietnam vet. Think of those now, that's, it's becoming more distance for Desert Storm, that you know some of your Desert Storm vets 
Slowly those guys are getting out and now it's even the Afghanistan war, 2001, 2003, the early invasion of Iraq, 2003, that there are those that find very much an identity in their deployment to what part of the country they deployed when they were overseas downrange. So it's not just that you deployed, but it's that you deployed to a certain place, so a type of deployment. Even I found that there was frequency of deployments, that there were those who were on their third and fourth and fifth deployments. And in the army, that's no less than nine months when I was in, no less than nine months that they were away. So there, there was a certain camaraderie among those who had been deployed three, four, and five times. And then finally, finding our identity in our units. This is for those that maybe are a part of more of an elite unit. In the Army, we had our, our more historic units, 82nd Airborne, 101st. Each military branch has its own version, whether it's a submariner, uh, whether you're a recon, marine, whatever that looks like, that we find our unit as our identity. So whether we've realized it or not, the military even creates this, this sense of identity based off of what we've done. Let me show you. I found this really interesting as I was preparing for this lecture. I saw this, so let me try and advance this to the next slide here. I'm gonna click all of these until one of them works. So uh, what I was looking at is the VFW, and if you're familiar with the VFW, we have a post right in our town up in Santa Clarita. This is their mission, to foster camaraderie among United States veterans of overseas conflicts to foster camaraderie. If you've ever been to a VFW, it's very much like a community. You go into the VFW and you find friends, you find buddies, you start to connect dots to branches and then to units and then to where you've served. The military, this is what you have in your notes, the military with good intentions, I believe, I don't believe these are wicked or nefarious intentions, with good intentions can become one's identity which results in a false identity. Let me say that one more time. The military, with good intentions, can become one's identity, which results in a faulty identity. I don't believe that any of us or any of those who have gone into the military and found it to be their identity were doing it for wrong reasons. But you recognize that despite my motivation, I can still have a faulty identity, when I see myself as my unit, or as my rank, or as my evaluations, or as my deployments, I'm starting to now tug at a biblical understanding of my identity, something that this weekend is completely dedicated to. What's a biblical understanding of our identity? The military, whether it's intending to or not, it's tugging at, it's potentially tugging at my biblical identity. So I wanna pose a few questions for you, and you have these in your notes. Some of these experientially you would be able to attest to as well. I want you to think with me, excuse me, how do I know that my military identity has become my overall overarching identity? How do I know that the military has become my identity? Let me go with you to the next slide here. You know, um, when the gentleman handed it to me, he said, it's very straightforward. You just click a button and it goes. <laughs> just tell you the army guys, we have a lot to learn. I know that the military has become my identity whenever I've let the vision of success in the military become my ultimate vision of success. Okay, let me tread lightly on some of this. I'm using the term ultimate vision of success for how I'm measuring myself as a success in the eyes of the Lord. Is retirement the ultimate vision of success? Maybe not. Is being deployed the ultimate vision of what success should look like? Is fast tracking to that next rank the ultimate vision of what success should look like in my life. Biblically, a vision of success is that we are growing to be more like Christ, that we're honoring God. Did you know that I could retire at 20 and not be honoring to God? That's not a success. I could fast track 
I could be a fast tracker. I could take every assignment, all my key development positions, and keep moving and not be a success with the Lord. I know that my military identity has become too big. I know that it's become my overarching identity whenever I let the vision of success of the military become my ultimate vision of success. Retirement, promotions, duty stations, specialty schools, elite units, success. That's what success looks like in my life. That's when I know that my identity is being wrapped too closely into the military. Next one. When my rank equates to the way in which I use my spiritual giftedness. When my rank equates to the way in which I use my spiritual giftedness. For instance, I was around long enough chapels. I was around long enough churches and military communities to where those who were lower ranking would be hesitant to use their gifts in a teaching capacity within the local church. They felt like that's no, like that's the sergeant, that's the NCO, that's the officer, that we don't see that as our place. Like we're the doers. We're going to go out and, and accomplish things. So there started to become this danger of now transposing the way that you use your giftedness based off of your rank in the military. I'll explain more of that here in a second when I talk through the idea of partiality. I'm at point C. How do I know the military has become my identity? Point C. When I judge other people who have not experienced what I have in the military as lesser than. Guys, the sin of partiality is rampant within the military. Let me describe some of what I mean by this. Oh, you haven't deployed? Oh, okay, you're one of those. You haven't deployed, I get it. Oh, you're non-combat arms. All right, all right, I get your, like, got it. That's you. Oh, you're from the Air Force. <laughs> the Air Force is our easy target. Like, oh, yeah, 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 right, right. Okay, got it, got it. Oh, you're, you're a lower ranking. Oh, maybe as for those of you who are moving towards getting out or you got out, you're, you wrestle through, you're a civilian. And you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like. You don't know what I had to do. You don't know what I've sacrificed for this. That's just partiality. At its core, that's partiality. We see in James that God is not a respecter of persons. I know that whenever I judge other people as lesser than because they, they haven't experienced what I've experienced, I know that my identity in the military has become my, my overarching identity. Let me keep going. Point D says, how do I know the military has become my identity when my key positions, duty stations, and career advancement rule Every decision I make. Let me explain some of these. Most of you are military affiliated. Let me try and explain some of these key positions. In the military, you have to take certain positions to keep moving. For us, we had to be a commander. I had to serve on staff somewhere. Um, for us, we had to be deployed. Like You have to accept those things if you want to continue to progress in rank. Whenever I'm letting those now inform and ultimately determine the decisions that I make, then I know that the military has become my identity. All of us can think of men and women who are willing to sacrifice everything for their career. It's senior year for their child and they accept a duty station they did not have to accept for the sake of their career. And you think, what in the world? Or that their spouse is highly content where they are and doesn't want to move, and then it would be better for my career if we moved. So they move. Or we, we could all think of men and women who are willing to forego good churches for the sake of advancing their career. If I take that next duty station, no matter what the spiritual life is going to be like when I'm there, then that's, that's the way that we should go, honey. That's the way that we should move, is that I ultimately think this is best for my career, no matter what our church will be like, only to regret it a year and a half, two years into it, because we realize that, no, our church means a lot to us. If we have a bad church, we cannot thrive. I know that the military has become my identity when I let my key positions, duty stations, and career advancement rule every decision that I make. All right, a few more, and then I wanna jump over to Ephesians 6 with you. I know it's become my identity when I believe lower ranking people are inherently less important. <laughs> that's, that's for, this is for real. As you think through, like, you're a private. What do you know? <laughs> well, is, is that the way that God works? Does God treat us that way? 
that it, everything's associated with our rank. It, it, for us, it was more of a lieutenant. You know, you're a lieutenant. You're an LT. What do you know? So back to my story earlier. As I was coming back onto Fort Gordon, I was coming back with a friend of mine who was a private. The context of that relationship is that in basic training, I was there with everybody else. And in order for us to go to officer candidate school, we did basic training with everybody else. So we made friends. And I intentionally was sharing the gospel with this one gentleman. And so he and I, uh, we became friends through that. He was sent to Fort Gordon. I was sent to officer candidate school and then to Fort Gordon. And then we reconnected. He was a private, maybe a private first class. When we were driving back onto Fort Gordon, you have to turn in your, you know, your card to get back on the base. The guard looks at our cars and goes, huh, and a lieutenant and a private hanging out. That's interesting. Hands us our ID cards back and sends us off. Whenever we start to let partiality seep into the way that we relate to others, we know that the military has become our identity. Last one for you, all right? This one might sting a little bit for those of us who this is perhaps a bit fresh. When my commitment to my unit is greater than my commitment to my church. When my commitment to my unit is greater than my commitment to my church. I am all about duty and loyalty and honor and service. But some of us are really available for our units and really unavailable for our local churches. I know that if I am letting my commitments in the military um, not even allow me to pursue involvement in a local church, that maybe the military has become my identity. So let me try and frame a biblical understanding of this for you. So grab your Bible. We're going to go to a few places. My goal is to help frame a biblical understanding of soldiering, of military, of how should we think about what it means to be in the military so I've tried to articulate the dominant places where the Bible speaks of as a good soldier, or you sub in your branch, as a good marine. So, so let's start, let's go to Ephesians 6. You're familiar with this, I hope. This is the passage that talks through how we engage in warfare. And in Ephesians 6, verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All right, so let me try and articulate what it's important to see out of this. First of all, you recognize that the Christian is engaged in a spiritual battle. That's the point of Ephesians 6 here. So the girding up, the putting on of the armor is in the context of verse 11 that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil because verse 12 is an explanatory statement about your warfare. You're not engaged in a warfare that is primarily physical, but you're engaged in a warfare that is spiritual. You recognize that Ephesians 6 is talking about the type of warfare in which you are engaged. Thus, you gird up your loins, or thus, you engage with the word. Thus, you put on the breastplate of righteousness. You think of all the different things that Paul goes on to illustrate. The shoes for your feet. In all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. When you see warfare being mentioned here, it's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Okay? One of the first illustrations of what it means to engage in battle, to understand what it means to be a soldier, is that your, your fight, your warfare, is not primarily material. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul echoes something similar. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 says for though we walk in the flesh we are not waging war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of god and take every thought captive to obey christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete 
Imagine what Paul and what um, Paul is saying to the Ephesians and the Corinthians. that The battle in which you are engaging is a spiritual battle. The call of a Christian soldier is not to a nation, first of all. It's not to a nation, first of all. It is only by the grace of God, if you see it that way, that you were born into America. I mean, and I consider it an honor to have been a soldier and to be a citizen of our country. But your first and foremost call is not to be a soldier or to be a military member of America. It's to engage in a spiritual battle, a Christian battle, one to where there is a kingdom that you're fighting for that's not of this world. Imagine the words that Jesus tells Pilate, John 18. Pilate's just trying to figure Jesus out. He's really trying to understand, like, who is this guy? Like, why do the Jews hate him so much? He doesn't seem like much of a problem maker to me. Jesus tells Pilate these words. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. You recognize that Pilate's saying, are you a king? Like, What's up? Why is this, what is this about? Are you a king? Are you a king of the Jews? These are your people. These aren't my people. Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. He's reminding Pilate that this is not a national kingdom that he is coming to establish. Something that Israel really, really, really wanted. They thought he was coming to be their national restoration leader, that they were going to come and find, now this is going to be our leader that's going to make everything right, give it back to the Jews. And when Jesus came in Matthew, it was clear that it was going to be a spiritual kingdom. It was clear that now he was going to be the ruler of a kingdom that was not of this earth. So when Jesus rebukes Peter, let me read to you from Matthew 26. He says something that really challenges our military intentions. This is from Matthew 26, verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. He had just cut off Malchus's ear. Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus reminds Peter in the moment of his arrest, it's not a national kingdom, Peter. Put it away, put the sword back. I could take care of this. I don't need you to wield your sword right now. Jesus warns Peter of even the dangers of living by violence too and that those who live in a violent way can expect that violence will return to them. Well, you recognize that first of all, Ephesians 6 and 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 10, both of those are trying to establish the nature of the warfare in which you are engaged. It is a spiritual battle first, not a national battle. That means that my ultimate allegiances are not to America. Let me tell you, this was a tension for me. I have a tendency to overthink things. My wife says that I can overthink anything. It's a spiritual gift of mine. Well, I had a top secret whenever I was in the uh, military. And as you're going through the clearance process, you'll recall some of this for, for those of you who've gone through it. You have to make declarations to the United States. And as I was moving towards top secret clearance, it was that there's going to be an ultimate allegiance to America you're not going to spill information, you're not going to share information that would be detrimental to the United States of America. Okay, like not to overthink everything, but Greg is wrestling in that moment with, like, my ultimate allegiance isn't to America. I love this place. My ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. So I know what you're asking me to say right now, that I'm not going to go sell secrets to another country. Yes, I get that. But my ultimate allegiance isn't to you. I still got a top secret clearance. I was able to kind of work through in my mind and say, yes, I'm not going to sell information. I'm not going to endanger our country. But my ultimate allegiance isn't to you. My ultimate allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom. So whenever we see the nature of warfare throughout scripture, it's not a national warfare. It's a spiritual warfare 
So in Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 10, in 1 Peter 5, whenever you see the way that the devil works, or in James chapter 4, how do you engage the devil? Will you draw near to God, resist the devil? He'll flee from you. You recognize in all of those there's a spiritual battle. So then what of soldiering? What about soldiering? Go with me to 2 Timothy. You know, primarily where we see military being used is by Paul. So Ephesians 6, 2 Corinthians, Jesus makes references to his kingdom and to living a life of violence, but Paul is the one that uses the idea of being a soldier. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, this is verse, let's start in verse 1 and then we'll read down to verse 3. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's the emphasis. Sharing in suffering. And then he uses the illustration of what it means to be a soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. For any of you who've been in the military, you recognize there's some suffering that comes with that. Just going to the the dining facility, there's some suffering there. A good soldier is going to suffer, Timothy, and you must be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. In fact, we see that 2 Timothy is chocked full of examples on, Timothy, be bold for the gospel, be willing to suffer for the gospel. Verse 8, I'm not ashamed of the testimony, and don't be ashamed of me, because I want you to be willing to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Over and over, we see Paul encouraging a timid Timothy to be bold and to be willing to suffer. And one of the analogies that he uses is being like a soldier. Soldiers don't engage in civilian affairs. Soldiers are willing to suffer. Paul calls Timothy toward courageous action. That's the point here. Skip over to 1 Timothy with me. We see another reference here in 1 Timothy. He says in verse 18 of chapter 1, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. How do you engage in spiritual warfare? Will you engage in it by holding the faith and a good conscience? And some have not done that. This poor Hymenaeus guy, whoever he is, he gets listed multiple times in Timothy. Paul calls him out. The point of what Paul is telling Timothy here is that you are like a soldier engaged in warfare by holding fast to the truth. If you're familiar with Ephesus and Timothy's time, it was a perverted place that was surrounded by false teaching. Those that were creeping in and saying, hey, the resurrection has already happened. Hey, let's be divisive. Let's try and woo people in. Paul even says wives' fables, uh, excuse me, wives' fables, yes, Um, that there were deceivers that were going forth in the church at Ephesus. So what Paul is calling young Timothy toward is that you would be willing to hold fast to the truth. You must be willing to hold fast to the truth. That's what warfare looks like for you, Timothy. So I say all of that to make the point that the Bible makes reference to being a soldier primarily in regard to being bold in your suffering. Primarily in regard to being bold in your suffering for the gospel. Isn't that interesting? This isn't about national loyalties. I can't make this my recruiting pitch for how and why you should come to the American military. When the Bible talks about warfare, it talks about it in the nature of spiritual warfare. So when we recognize that as an identity, we see that the term soldiering really should be a sub-identity. You you should see something here that says the term soldiering was used for the gospel with a call to be bold for suffering. There's not an elevation of now being superior because you're a soldier. 
It's not about being a soldier for a specific nation. It's about now seeing that your warfare is not material, but spiritual, and engaging it in a way that honors the Lord. So this was the next point. Soldiering was to understand the nature of warfare, not to promote a specific identity. You have this in your notes. I want to read it to you. A soldier is never biblically expressed as one's identity. You okay with that statement? A soldier is never biblically expressed as one's identity, but rather as a means of demonstrating the type of warfare one engages in with the gospel, thus making them bold to suffer. Hear me on this. My personal soldiering, your personal soldiering, is always reflective of and subordinate to our soldiering as a Christian. Let me explain that statement. There is no point as a military member when your identity as a military member should trump and supersede the way that God sees you. That you would be willing to compromise your identity as a Christian, as a child of God, as called or chosen, the way Deepak organized it tonight. That, that you in no way are willing to compromise that identity for the sake of your identity as a military member. There are certain things I will not compromise because I'm a Christian. I will not let my vocation be more important than my family. I will not let my integrity take back seat to my duty station. I want to get Hawaii. I want to be in Europe. When my personal soldiering tugs at my soldiering as a Christian, I must always give deference to my soldiering as a Christian. That's how we know. I won't take that duty station. I won't go to that school and leave my, my wife with the kids alone longer. I'm not going to allow my personal soldiering to trump my responsibilities as a Christian. That identity will always remain superior. So it's not to throw baby out with bathwater. It's to say that we must get it right, that the Bible doesn't elevate our personal soldiering. The Bible elevates being a Christian soldier, recognizing that this is to embolden us for the sake of the gospel. This is to now make sure that I'm not finding my identity in this subculture, but I'm finding my identity in Christ and what he says about me. So let me give you just a few thoughts as we try and land the plane here. Here's some practical strategies for military as we seek to be a part of a subculture, we find a sub-identity. I recognize that there's always going to be a VFW type spirit. There's always going to be a camaraderie, and those things are good. We fight to build esprit de corps within the military. We, we fight for that. We want to have that camaraderie. But here are some practical strategies that we should consider in this process. Point A. In Christ, all people of all nations are equal, meaning my service is not my first identity, but my status in Christ. Let me explain that statement. Depending on your generation depends on whom you struggle to love. At one point, it may have been Korean, Chinese. At one point, it may have been Vietnamese. At one point, it may have been Russian. At one point, it may have been Iraqi. At one point, it may have been Afghan. That if we are letting our national loyalties elevate us to a low-level view of bigotry or racism, then we're letting our identity as a military member get too big in our life. In Christ... All nations are equal, and America is not inherently better because it's America. So I recognize that, first of all, all nations are equal, and then second of all, that serving as a military member does not in some way make me more a child of God or advance my righteousness to a certain degree. That oftentimes, as military members, we think that we're God's gift to our country. You guys are welcome. We served for 20 years, you're welcome. We went overseas for you guys, you're welcome. You guys should do parades for us. I'm expecting 10% discounts everywhere I eat. You're welcome. No, 
you recognize that your righteousness only comes from Jesus Christ, his righteousness. Your military service does not add to the righteousness of Christ. Ah, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's only by the fact that Jesus took the sin punishment that you deserved and imputed to you his righteous account that you're able to stand before a holy and just God. Sometimes we let our soldiering add to the righteousness of Christ. We see that our national soldiering in some way is ratifying or validating what Jesus has done. And that's a very dangerous thing when I begin to think of myself as a better person because of my military service. I'm better than you because I served our country for 20 years. Ha! Ah. Ooh, that's a scary thing to say. That's a very prideful slope to start to walk on. Point B. The local church must remain my first and my primary community, not my unit or the VFW. Hear me on that. The local church, the church is where God has placed military members and God has strategically gifted them with spiritual gifts for the building up of the church, not their unit. Sometimes in the military, we let the unit, we let the military community become our church, and we are very little, if at all, engaged in a local church. We've all been a part of a chapel. Chapels are similar. They're similar to a local church, but there's often not spiritual authorities. There's often not a church structure. We have a chaplain who preaches for us on a regular basis. So we still get spiritual care, we still get the word to varying degrees, but it's not the same as a local church. So we recognize that our identity, we're seeking to commit to maintaining that our identity is in the body of Christ. We're wanting to align ourselves with the body of Christ. It's ultimately in the church where I will use the, the gifts that God has entrusted to me for the building up of the church. Ooh, that's a dicey one. All right, let me keep going. I've, I've known guys to do this, by the way. This is point C. When wearing my military uniform, I will only boast in Christ and his work on my behalf. Sometimes not wearing the entirety of my medals. What do I have that I did not receive? And if I received it, the verse goes on to say, why do I boast? Jeremiah 9 says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You were part of an elite unit. Praise the Lord. You went to some high-speed schools. Praise the Lord. Your identity cannot be in those things and your boasting cannot either. You want a practical way to be able to ensure that you're not wrapping yourself up in the military? Well, just be sure that when you're, you're wearing that military uniform that you're not boasting in your own accomplishments, your own deployments, your own specialty schools. Be sure that you're boasting in Christ and his work on your behalf. You can be proud. You can be proud of what you've accomplished, but what do you have that you didn't receive? Even the lungs that you have, you've received. The most basic thing to be able to accomplish anything is a heart. Who's sustaining that? That's the work of God in our life. We're not going to boast in our own accomplishments. We're going to boast in Christ and his work. Finally, I will measure success by greater conformity to the image of Christ, not by advancing to the next rank, completing specialty schools, deployments, or my own physical abilities. Let me say it in a negative way. I may not get picked up for major and grow to be more like Jesus Christ, and that's a success. Huh? You guys okay with that? I may not get picked up for that next rank and grow to be more like Jesus Christ, and that's a success. I may forego a one-year deployment because I think it would be better to be with my family than to separate for a year. I may forego that. That would be better for my career. I would get choice of duty station when I'm done, but I'm still gonna forego it, forego it because I think it'd be better to be with my family, and I may honor my family, and my career may be just plateaued after that point and be a success in God's eyes. You okay with that? I may retire at 18 years <sighs> because my marriage isn't doing so well. 18, we're on the five-yard line. <laughs> Come on, we're going to get there. I retire at 18 years. I get out at 18 years. 
because I realize that my marriage is more important than collecting retirement. That's what it means to not let the vision of success of the military become my vision of success. You want the practical strategy of what it looks like? Be willing to recognize that all nations, all people are equal in Christ, that we must seek to prioritize the local church, that we're not gonna boast in our accomplishments, our OERs, our EERs, our military uniforms, and that we're gonna let the vision of success of being more like Jesus guide us and drive us. All right, final story, and then I'll, I'll pause for any questions or thoughts that you guys might have. When I got out of the military in 2012, that was the hardest six months of my life. Let me explain what was so hard about that. I went from being a captain, but there was modest respect. You know, you're not just treated like a hero, but there was modest respect. I was in charge of soldiers, I was in charge of civilians, and then I also had this international team that was a part of us. I had to sign for like every piece of equipment in our unit. I never liked that, but it always give you like a sense of responsibility. And then I got out to go to graduate school. You wanna know my first job getting out of the military? Hell, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, don't tell anybody. It was filing paperwork with a dealership. They needed help filing old car invoices. You know who I was there with? High schoolers. I was there with people that just thought like all military equated to Rambo. And here I was thinking like I was something. I'm a captain, I got a top secret, I'm in like my best physical condition, I felt like I was the leader of leaders, and here I am stacking papers at a dealership. What is this? What the Lord had to do was he had to humble me and show me that I was finding my identity in my military accomplishments. You know the best way to do that? is through my vocation. I couldn't get a meaningful job for a while. You know who could? First phone call that she made? My wife. She got a full-time job in like five days. I'm in, we're in graduate school trying to piece things together. I'm, I'm scrapping for things. I'm getting turned down from Barnes and Noble. My wife calls and makes a phone call and uh, within three days she has a full-time job. We're good to go, we're covered. Graduate school's gonna be just fine. <laughs> It was the hardest time in my life because I had to slowly back away from who am I? I've been so wrapped up in military. I've been so wrapped up in next duty station, next specialty school, so wrapped up in my OER, so wrapped up in my deployment, so wrapped up in my advancement that I hadn't come back to find out that my identity is not in any of that. It can't be. It never delivers when it is. My identity can only be in Christ and what he says about me. So that transition for a military member to civilian life is a tough time because what it's doing is it's tugging at our very core, our very identity. What we found our identity in for all of those years, maybe four years, maybe six years, maybe 20 years, maybe 25 years, it's tugging at that identity and it's helping us remember that our ultimate identity can't be found in the military. It never lasts. All right. Questions or thoughts or concerns. I'm even open to a few rude remarks if you guys have them. We have a few minutes left. I'll try not to keep you too late if you have any questions. Things that come to mind out of what I've said. Don't feel like you have to make something up to, to fill the silence. Well, what I'm gonna do is let me pray for us and then I'll stick around too. Maybe if you have a question that would be helpful to converse. You're, you're forced to hear me more, unfortunately. I'll be back tomorrow. We get to talk through education and fitness, finding our identity in those things. And then finally, I will be leading us on Saturday as we talk through finding our identity and being a child of God. So let me pray for you guys, and then I'll, I'll stick around. Lord, all of us are struggling uh, to keep the balance right of our identity whether it's our vocation, whether it's being a father to children, or whether it's being a pastor or spiritual leader, or whether it's being a wife to a husband. Lord, uh, each of us are trying to get that balance right of what it means to be chosen, what it means to be adopted, what it means to be called by you, what it means to be your child. Help us to get that right. Help us to find our identity not in what we do, but what you have done for us. As we think of military, we, we are so grateful 
that we have been given the privilege to serve in the American military. We honestly do see that as a privilege. We recognize that America is not the greatest country, but we also recognize that it is a good country, and so we're thankful for that. And yet in that work, in that doing on our own part, may we not in some way find that that is our identity, that that is who we are, that that defines us, but rather being in your son Jesus is what defines who we are. Being your child defines who we are. Help us to get that balance right. Help us to minister to others as they get that balance right and to point them to their ultimate identity, which is found in you and being in your child or being in your family. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these friends that are here. Pray that you would enrich us through this weekend, that we would all be sharpened through your word. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.